Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Thanks to AI, artificial intelligence, you may be hearing me right now just by telling your smart speaker to play the show. Thanks for listening. Today, where we live, we examine how far artificial intelligence or machine learning has come in the wake of a strange story about a Google engineer claiming the tech giant's chatbot Lambda is sentient. Now, an AI application with feelings may bring to mind sci-fi movies like the 2013 film Her, where a man named Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, has a relationship with an AI virtual assistant, Samantha. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't been social in a while. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? Thank you. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi, I'm Samantha. Now you may recognize that voice. It's Scarlett Johansson. Coming up, we learn about the importance of transparency in machine learning. It's something the Washington Post reports Meta, the parent company of Facebook, has considered by opening its language model to academics, civil society, and government organizations. Now what questions do you have about artificial intelligence? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at where we live. My first guest on Zoom is Dr. Karina Vold, a philosopher of cognitive science and artificial intelligence. She's professor at the University of Toronto's Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology. Karina, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Now, what got you interested in researching AI? Well, um, I actually was first interested in the mind and just the human mind. So my um, early research was in the metaphysics of mind and trying to understand how technology affects us. And then at the time, AI was just really taking off and in particular, um, some of the advancements in deep learning. And what excites me now is just trying to understand um, what deep learning can tell us about the human mind. And again, how it's affecting us as humans. There's been a lot of advancements when we think about artificial intelligence. That term has even evolved quite a bit. So uh, take us back in time, uh, Karina, when we think about early AI ideas. Right, absolutely. The term has a long history. So it goes back at least to the 1800s. Um, Some people credit um, somebody called Charles Babbage for thinking of some of the early computers and early machines. Um, A lady named Lady Lovelace who wrote the first AI program. Um, But probably the field of AI as we recognize it today started in around 1955 at a conference at Dartmouth College. And there um, it was a a group of scholars, John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, Nathaniel Rochester, and Claude Shannon in particular, who came up with the definition of AI, where they said a machine is intelligent if it can behave in ways that would be called intelligent 
if a human were so behaving. Mm. So it's a, it's a definition that really has us look at the outward behavior of a machine. Um, when we think about how AI is used today, it really is quite a broad use. So it includes almost any approach that attempts to make a machine perform intelligently. So when we think about how the machine is performing, there are these neural networks that, that, that uh, I guess, mimic the way our brains work and even human speech today? That's right, yes. So today's um, neural networks um, really are trying to model um, how the neurons in our brains um, operate and behave. And um, sort of deep learning, what's really taken off in the last um, five or 10 years is a form of a neural network, which includes many, many hidden layers between what's called an input layer and the output layer. And these deep learning systems try to model um, using data, so uh, modeling data with, with these many layered um, networks. And these networks are able to learn in, in different ways, um, whether it's supervised or unsupervised or with what's called reinforcement learning. But ultimately, they're trying to find patterns and connections um, in the data that we input into the system. If you have a question about artificial intelligence, join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I had mentioned smart speakers at the top of the show. Can you give us some other uh, applications that people may not even think about that is using uh, AI uh, to, um, you know, help them on their certain apps or uh, to learn certain information? Yes, absolutely. So AI today is, is really surrounding us. And, and as you say, you may not be aware of it, but you think about uh, what songs that you're being recommended on um, Spotify or another music playing app. Often those songs are um, being recommended based on some algorithm that's um, looking at what you've listened to in the past. And uh, let's say that you uh, hop in your car and head to work. Your car itself might be using some software or algorithm in order to help with fuel regulation. Perhaps you're even driving a self-driving car that uses some artificial intelligence software. Um, many people like to use uh, an app like Google Maps, um, for example, to find their way to the office or the best route with traffic. That too is being guided by some kind of um, AI algorithm in the background. The podcast that you might get recommended on the way, um, that's often using some kind of AI algorithm as well, whether it's through a YouTube or, or Apple Music. Um, when, you, when you get to the office, um, you might uh, you know, end up checking your email, and that is using a spam filter that's often guided by, again, some deep learning to make sure that you're getting the emails that you really need to look at. When you go to the bank to apply for a, a, a bank loan, um, that's often being uh, run through an algorithm to make a prediction about how likely it is that you will be a good uh, loanee. Um, so it's really being used in many, many different areas of our lives these days. It certainly is all around us. Even when we think, of, you mentioned uh, when we get in, in, into our vehicles, uh, thinking about how technology is ongoing with autonomous vehicles and how there's already kinks being shown and, um, you know, how to react to variables in the real world. What happens when a person doesn't walk in the crosswalk and an autonomous vehicle? I think we've seen um, some fatalities that happen, uh, Karina. Yes, that's right. It's uh, It's a concerning thing. Um, so human, our human behavior is often un, unpredictable in, in many ways. 
Um, so to the extent to which these algorithms are trying to make accurate predictions about what we might do, um, there can be these limitations. And in the case of autonomous vehicles, um, there's a real concern about um, who's responsible when these things go wrong. So if, if the technology doesn't perform to the standard that we'd hope, and as you mentioned, there have been some really tragic cases, um, we want to make sure that this tech is compliant with existing laws and regulations, um, but also that we uh, make sure that we have laws and regulations around new technologies. And we'll be talking more about that coming up here on Where We Live. You're hearing Dr. Karina Vold, again, a philosopher of cognitive science and artificial intelligence at the University of Toronto. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So when we, we will go back in time and we think about how artificial intelligence has evolved and even the term, as, as you described, um, you know, there's so much information out there now because of the Internet. Um, but, but, but back in time, uh, having to hand code, so probably fairly limited uh, back versus now, Karina. That's right. So one of the exciting things about deep learning and machine learning, the terms that you'll often hear used today, and today they're being used almost synonymously with artificial intelligence. But the truth is that machine learning is just a subfield of AI. So AI includes many different techniques. Um, again, almost we could say any approach that attempts to make a machine perform intelligently. And um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, a lot of that was being done with, as you say, sort of slower symbolic processing that was hand-coded often quite laboriously by humans, sometimes using you know, thousands and thousands of lines of code. Whereas today, one of the things that makes um, deep learning so powerful is that it's able to learn to solve problems um, somewhat on its own. So it's, it's able to use a large amount of data and some kind of learning technique, and then to derive its own predictions about the world. Predictions that might even surprise the, the folks who programmed it and to begin with. I wanted to bring up this uh, great example of how you know machine learning is helping journalism. We have a data journalist here, Jim Hadadine, who uh, wrote a recent piece about machine learning for accountability reporting. In this instance, it helped them comb through information on court fees for a story. Uh, Hadadine also highlighted the Associated Press uses AI for repetitive tasks like writing articles and corporate earning. How do you respond uh, to that application? Well, um, yes, you're right. And um, this is being used in, in many different ways. And um, I, I would like to know a little bit more about the situation itself. So usually when we say that a machine is writing some text and it's being released on online or to the public, in the best case scenario, there is a human still involved. So a sort of a human in the loop who's reading over that text, who's maybe making their own human edits to it and making sure that the... Um, semantics of the text, so what, what the text is actually saying, what it actually means, is um, A, truth tracking, so that it, it regards the truth and, and that it um, holds the truth of value, um, so that it's not misinforming, um, but also that it, um, you know, stylistically and, um, and everything else is pleasing to humans, so it's not just clickbait, in other words. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we are seeing online is a lot of articles that are being released by these large language models, um, which you referred to at the beginning, things like Lambda chatbots or um, what's called GPT-3 uh, from the company OpenAI. 
And these um, are allowing uh, humans to generate all sorts of texts um, just by prompting the machine with a few words in some cases. So it's a really powerful model that's being, these models are often being trained on like a library's worth of books, as well as, you know, all of Wikipedia and basically as much data as they can get their hands on, um, so to speak. Um, but unfortunately, the models themselves um, they don't have any understanding of what's going on, what they're actually um, sort of spitting out, and, and therefore can lead to some, you know, some wild misinformation um, if these bots are used in the wrong way. So that's uh, one real concern there. I wanted to get more into when we think about the processes behind uh, the machine learning, the algorithms uh, that are uh, being uh, created, and how ethics, uh, how that plays a part in what's being implemented. You know, what are the the, the questions uh, that are being raised, the concerns, uh, Karina? Right. Well, there's quite a few. Um, I'll go through maybe just a handful. Um, so the way these models work, as, I, as I've mentioned, is by having a lot of data. So one reason that deep learning models really have taken off is because we now have all of this data available um, for them to learn on. And one of the concerns that many ethicists have is um, how that data is being collected. Is it being collected with the right kind of informed consent? And can one, for example, reasonably decline the use of some kind of data collection? Um, so if you think about all the apps that you have on your phone, many of us now know, I, I hope, that many of these apps sort of passively are collecting data about you um, and using that data and sort of selling it, essentially, um, so that uh, some other model owned by another company is able to feed that into their deep learning system. And tracking where that data is being used and how it's being sold um, is a very complicated process uh, for data ethicists. Another concern about these data sets is who has access to them. So as I mentioned, they're, they're being sold in some cases. Um, and we don't know when that data is being sold, uh, if it's being securely stored, um, if it could be hacked, for example, and um, if it's anonymous or not. So how, how personal is the information that's being used? Um, is it your health information or is it just information about what books you read? You know, so th there's different kinds of information, some of which might be more sensitive than others. Uh, but what we want to make sure is that if your personal information is being collected, um, that it's being A, anonymized and B, that it's not possible for it to be de-anonymized, um, which, is, which is a concern in, in a lot of cases. And then when this data is being fed through a deep learning system, Depending on um, how complicated those hidden layers are, which I referred to earlier, sometimes we can have a model that has hundreds of hidden layers. And what's going on in there is so complex that even the creators of the model can't really understand fully why some prediction was made. So this is an issue called explainability, sometimes called transparency uh, by AI ethicists. And our concern here is that can end users and can even the creators of these models give us an explanation of some outcome? So why was some particular decision or prediction made? In some cases, it might not matter. You know, why does um, one song recommendation come up or one video recommendation come up for you on, let's say, a YouTube platform or Spotify? But in another case, like a bank loan, it might really matter. Or uh, in a fatality with a self-driving car 
we, we need to understand what's actually going on and what caused that. So this is a, an area of great concern um, for many folks working in artificial intelligence today. And there's been a lot of great work, both technical and philosophical work around what we can do to improve these um, level of explainability in models. Well, when you brought up uh, the bank loan example and thinking about how humans are involved in some part of this uh, process, uh, you know, the, the bias uh, playing a part and how companies are working to ensure these biases are not reflected in the software, the algorithms developed. Can you tell us more? Yes, absolutely. It's another great concern. Um, so you might think, well, it's a great idea in some cases to replace um, the decision of who gets a bank loan with the machine, because we know that humans have all sorts of biases built into us. So we, we have what are called um, implicit biases and cognitive biases, biases that maybe help us make fast decisions, um, biases that we we understand to be built into our brains because our brains are, are limited information processors. Um, but these biases can also, um, as we know, um, cause, um, you know, implicit racial judgments about people or cause us to prefer our in-group decisions instead of sort of out-group decisions. So while evolutionarily speaking, many of these biases have good functions, um, they nevertheless can have bad outcomes for us as humans. So you might think, well, great, let's replace a human with a machine because a machine um, won't have those same biases built in. Unfortunately, what we're finding even though there may be a good intention there, is that when we build these machines, often we end up embedding our own societal biases in them, whether implicitly or explicitly. So an example is that um, one uh, big company, I believe it was Google, um, it developed a facial recognition algorithm, uh, which was much better at uh, recognizing white male faces than female faces or African-American faces. And part of the reason for that was because the data set the algorithm was trained on included mostly white male faces. And you would ask, well, who made a decision like that? Well, unfortunately, what we find is that the tech industry and uh, most AI engineers are white males. So that's a clear example where their own bias of what a human face ought to look like was embedded into that system rather explicitly. In other cases, what we find is that there may be a sort of unbiased data set to the extent that there can be such a thing. Um, but the way the system is being built to optimize for certain outcomes or predictions, it in itself finds um, ways to highlight societal biases. So for example, with a bank loan, um, it, it may you may not be asked, you know, what is your ethnicity or what is your race, but you may be asked things um, about your postal code, about your um, income, about um, other sort of factors in life, which can actually be strong predictors of um, race or ethnicity. And therefore, the system itself ends up implicitly embedding these and sometimes even exaggerating them. That's a good example of the importance of even diversifying the technologists who are developing these systems, Karina. Yes, absolutely. And it's one of the things that I really recommend for those uh, companies um, who are um, serious about building responsible technologies, responsible AI technologies. 
um, that we need to have uh, more diversity in the rooms um, who are, you know, in the conversations that are building these technologies. Um, and that's diversity, not just in terms of ethnicity and race and uh, gender, but also a diversity in terms of their um, scholarly backgrounds. So for example, if we only have engineers building these technologies, they may not have an understanding of some of the more humanistic and societal aspects of the technologies they're building. So it's important to have sociologists, um, anthropologists, philosophers, dare I say, um, and, and as well as diversity in terms of um, stakeholders. So we want to have end users, for example, involved in some of this um, responsible design process so that we can understand what effects these technologies are having on those users that often might be sort of surprising to the creators themselves. When we think about the tech companies that are incorporating ethics into their development, is this across the board? You know, where is the, is there public pressure? When we think about even how these companies are regulated, you know, who's on board uh, with thinking about this? Uh, is it just, uh, you know, fragmented at this point? A great question. It is somewhat fragmented. In the last few years, we've seen almost a global landscape of what I would call AI. AI ethical guidelines, so lists of principles um, that um, companies or organizations, governments, even NGOs independently have come up with um, that they believe should guide uh, uh, practice in AI. And you could think about these kind of like the biomedical um, ethical principles, so do no harm, um, do good. Um, you know, respect autonomy. So they're quite high level principles, but we have seen quite quite a few uh, organizations come on board for that, in, including the ones that we've mentioned, Google, Microsoft, um, as well as many academic organizations and governments. So part of the challenge um, with that kind of first wave acknowledgement of the um, ethical implications of these technologies is that they really did include quite high level principles that were hard to translate into practice for developers. Um, so if you think about the traditional bioethics principles, um, again, beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice, um, those principles are very high level and doctors are trained on how to apply those in particular instances, complicated instances that they'll find themselves in. You know, maybe. Um, a family thinks it's time to let this person go off of life support, but the doctors think, well, actually, there's still a chance for them. How do you navigate that? So doctors are given a lot of training on how, how to navigate these complicated situations. But what we'd like to see is the same sort of stuff happening for um, software engineers. Um, and that move from these principles to um, ethics in practice is uh, I think a more challenging one. So that's something that um, is taking a, a lot more work and that I think really needs to be context and sector dependence. So in other words, what we prioritize in finance might be different than what we prioritize in healthcare. That might be different than what we prioritize in our retail use of algorithms uh, and so forth. Mm -hmm. 
This is fascinating stuff, but I can't help but think uh, when uh, the question about regulation and, and what lawmakers even understand about the process, uh, you know, harkening back to when there were uh, hearings before uh, Congress on social media and some lawmakers not even quite understanding how it worked, uh, Karina. That's problematic. <laughs> that is problematic. You're absolutely right. So what we also need, um, and I, I say this really strongly, is that we we need um our regulators to regulate. Um, so it's it's not enough for self-regulation for these companies. Uh, we, we can't rely on companies that are um, aimed at maximizing profit to regulate themselves in a way that may not maximize profit. And what that, what that means is that we need our politicians and our regulators to understand some of the technology in, in a, even just in a basic way. Um, there, you know, there's a real, I think, philosophical question about exactly how much technical expertise you need in order to come up with good AI governance and regulation. But I think the shorter answer is you need at least some understanding of the technology. And we, I think we're lucky in that in Western society, many of our politicians are trained in the humanities. So they are often concerned about um, ethical questions and societal impacts. Um, but on the other hand, in some other cultures, um, many of the politicians are trained more in the sciences um, and have a really in-depth understanding of the technology, um, but maybe lack the training in humanities. Well, we're glad you're here with us, Dr. Karina Vold, philosopher of cognitive science and artificial intelligence and professor at the University of Toronto, as we learn more about AI and how it applies uh, to us today. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're learning about deep learning that goes into artificial intelligence applications today. Now, AI is often portrayed in sci-fi films and shows like HBO's Westworld, a program about a futuristic amusement park. Here's a clip with Bernard talking to robot Dolores and the park's human engineer, Robert Ford, talking to them. 
bring yourself back online. Do you know where you are? I'm in a dream. You're in my dream. I designed every part of this place. Not a theme park, but an entire world. You and everyone you know were built to gratify the desires of the people who pay to visit your world. Just don't forget, they're not real. Now, how do you interact with AI in daily life? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guest today on Zoom, Dr. Karina Vold, philosopher of cognitive science and artificial intelligence and professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, Karina, we had a question uh, from a listener who wanted to know if government has thought about using artificial intelligence to solve the problems of taxation and better governance. How do you respond? Yes, um, great question. And um, it certainly is the case that governments, um, both at the state level and the federal level, and um, up in Canada at the provincial and federal level, um, are using artificial intelligence to help streamline different aspects of governance. So one example is that um, the Canadian government has uh, started to use um, artificial intelligence to sort through immigration applications um, and to try to uh, increase efficiency um, of who sort of gets accepted for um, their applications and um, who needs to be reviewed by um, sort of a human uh, employee to understand the nuances of a case. So, um, you know, again, that can come with certain risks and um, certain rewards. Um, so it can in decrease the wait time for some people, but it, it also can um, create potentially some bias and fairness issues. Um, which is something I've written a little bit about. I know in the States as well, um, there are many cases of AI being used for um, policing and also for um, sentencing in the courts. So another example there is, uh, again, of how government is using AI itself. You know, I have to ask, uh, because when we were thinking about doing this show, uh, the peg was this strange story, this Google engineer uh, who claims that the Lambda computer chatbot system was sentient or has a consciousness. Uh, what were your mm -hmm. thoughts when you read this story? <laughs> right. Um, I was a little concerned, to be honest. Um, it's always great for me as a philosopher of mine to, to have these topics in the mainstream. But um, I would warn people that although some of these large language models might sound convincing, especially when we prompt them to talk about their quote unquote feelings, um, really, this is this is just a, a really sophisticated chatbot um, that's trained on enormous amounts of text that is written by humans. Um, so, for example, GPT-3, which is the large language model developed by OpenAI, um, th this was trained on Wikipedia, Common Crawl, and a library worth of books. So somewhere in that text, it's very likely that, um, you know, there was some text written by humans about the human experience, about consciousness. So if you prompt it to talk about sentience, it will be able to find something to say and offer some similar text. Um, now, nothing in what I've described right now suggests that that system itself is sentient or that it has consciousness. So I, I would be worried um, that some humans um, 
you know, we, we have what's called an anthropomorphic bias. So mm -hmm. this uh, bias to want to see or attribute psychological features in other creatures or even in other um, entities that, that may not actually be there. And we need to be careful not to make that attribution too soon. Mm. When you talk about that, you know, I understand there are technologists out there who believe AI models may not be far off from achieving consciousness. And so, you know, if AI systems were to have independent thought, what do you think the next steps would be in the industry, Karina? Well, um, I think it's really important before we talk about um, what steps to take to really make sure that we have clear benchmarks and clear sort of tests or measures to make such a judgment uh, of the one that you just mentioned. So how would we know, what would we look for um, in, a, in an AI system to indicate that it really does have some internal um, psychological competence rather than just being able to perform as if it has that competence? Um, if we could find such a benchmark and if we were convinced that such a system passed a benchmark, so we're already at a few ifs here, mm -hmm. um, th then we might be in a position where we would want to recognize those um, feelings and its capacity for pain, pleasure, boredom, excitement. So basically feelings that can have a positive or negative valence and um, recognize that in the way we do with other such creatures. So in other words, give it some protections so that we're not um, intentionally or, or we're not able to create it um, more harm or to cause it more suffering unnecessarily. So in other words, we would treat it like we do everything else that has feelings if we had such evidence. And um, we, you know, we attribute um, some kind of protections or we give some kind of protections under the law, even to animals um, for this reason as well. Uh, this this Google story, again, has, has created a lot of <laughs> conversations online. And you know, I've also uh, seen, uh, you know, the belief that, you know, this kind of story is, is a real diversion from real world harms by AI systems. You talked a little bit about that earlier about uh, disinformation that gets spread. Karina. Yes, that's right. And, and that is one of the concerns that I have about that conversation. And um, so it's true that uh, you know, I believe that consciousness is a scientific phenomenon and that one day in the future, that, that means that we may have something like AI consciousness. Um, but what we know now is that we have AI systems that are being deployed pervasively in our lives and that are having real um, consequences on our behaviors and affecting different groups um, differentially in different ways. And so I think the conversation really should be around those current day technologies and how we regulate them. Now, in the case of information and misinformation, um, what we've seen is that misinformation um, sometimes can be quite emotionally charged. And that means that um, it tends to garner more engagement by humans that interact with it. And some of the algorithms that decide what news is in your newsfeed um, those are optimizing for just that kind of engagement. So that just um, a simple thing like optimizing for engagement can allow or create the spread of um, misinformation or disinformation um, like wildfire across the internet. Um, and, and that's causing all, you know, all sorts of confusion today in our society about where, what the truth actually is and where do we get a reliable source of information.
I understand there's also a concept called nudging, which is used a lot in AI. Can you briefly tell us about that? Right, absolutely. So nudging actually is something that you're probably familiar with in the offline world. So the idea is that we could try to change people's behavior, not by removing their choice. Um, so not by banning something, for example, like sugary drinks um, or cigarettes, but instead by trying to change what we call their choice architecture. So trying to promote the kind of behaviors that we would like to see from them, promote the kinds of choices we would like. So one way we can do this, one, one thing I do, for example, is to try to put all my healthy foods at eye level in my fridge. And that way, I'm more likely to see those. And then I hide all my sugary foods somewhere else. And that's a way to kind of nudge a person um, where they can still have sugary food, but they're less likely to have it um, because they'll see the healthy food first and act on that. Another great example of a, a nudge in the offline world is um, a move that some countries have made to make organ donation um, the default, whereas um, you can still opt out of uh, being an organ donor, um, but it's uh, your choice. So in other words, you still have the choice of whether you'd like to be an organ donor or not, um, but instead of making it a choice where you have to opt into being an organ donor, you now have to opt out. So again, the choice is, itself is not being removed. It's just that the architecture of the choice is changing. And what these countries have found is that organ donations or the number of organ donors has gone up tremendously just by making a very subtle choice like that. Now, um, there's been tons of research around how these uh, changes can work in the offline world. But what we're seeing is that through um, our digital interfaces, more and more of these nudges are happening. So everything that you experience in the digital world has been designed by somebody for some reason. Um, if you think about uh, Netflix, even just probably five or, I don't know, 10 years ago, um, you when a show came on and you wanted to watch the second episode, you had to choose to watch that second episode. Now what happens is that when you watch episode one um, and it ends, there'll be a countdown into episode two so that you have to opt out of watching episode two. So that's a really subtle change in the online world, which has created a behavior where it's very easy for us to binge watch because episodes just fold into one another. Another example is when you search on Google, um, something like, you know, are philosophers, and then Google will prompt you with a bunch of suggested searches. Now, you might have gone into that thinking, I'm going to search, you know, are philosophers um, accomplished or are philosophers employed? Uh, who knows what you were going to search? But now that you've seen all of these different suggestions by Google, you might be encouraged to click one of those. So that in itself is a kind of prompt or a nudge for you to make a particular kind of action without actually removing a choice. And... Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, we're actually going to have to head to break, uh, but it's been a real pleasure to, to learn from you, Dr. Karina Volt, again, philosopher of cognitive science and artificial intelligence at the University of Toronto. And, you know, maybe we could have you back to talk more about how technology is impacting us, uh, the way that um, we may not be as social as we once were, and how these applications are just changing our interactions. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Great to be here. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Now, coming up, our next guest says there needs to be more transparency with AI and better protections for users. We'll learn more after a short break. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're learning about artificial intelligence. My next guest says there needs to be more transparency with AI and better protections for users. Reed Blackman is founder and CEO of Virtue, an AI ethics consultancy and author of the forthcoming book, Ethical Machines. Reed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we heard Karina talk about building transparency in tech. How does that happen? Tell us more. How does it happen? Mostly you have to require them by regulations. Uh, that's for the most part. So, you know, as, as Korea suggested, there's, there's a number of things to be transparent about. Um, there is transparency around the fact that you're using an AI. There's transparency around um, what data is being collected, uh, what sort of predictions are being made. Um, you know, uh, what's being done with those predictions. So there's, so when we talk about transparency, first of all, you have to note that there's lots of things about which one, say an organization can be transparent or opaque about. In order to get them to be transparent, well, there is going to have to be either some reputational reason, you know, for instance, um, if the public or Congress or something like that is demanding greater transparency, that might push them to be more transparent, or if they're just straight out laws that require them to be transparent about X, Y, and Z, then that would make them increasingly transparent. But for the most part, we have very little transparency around these things. Is there an example where a company, you know, that lacked transparency, you know, that got some public flack or the ramifications of that where they had to make the change? Yeah, well, I, I don't, so, you know, Meta, parent of Facebook, they are, you know, continuously blasted for a lack of transparency. In fact, I think it was just this morning that Meta's oversight board just uh, issued a statement saying that Facebook or Meta needs to be more transparent about what they're doing with AI, how they're using it, including especially how the AI, um, how their newsfeed is altered or manipulated or changed using AI. And so Facebook Meta is becoming increasingly transparent, although increasingly transparent from no transparency is not all that high of a bar to reach. So without that regulation, no transparency laws uh, that that currently exist, but when people are listening to this show and thinking about how artificial intelligence is in their lives, whether they realize it or not, you know, thinking about even privacy concerns, Reed, uh, tell us more about that. So there's, there's at least at least two, maybe three sources of potential invasions of privacy. One of them, uh, Karina mentioned earlier, which is that um, the data that is being used to create or train the AIs um, can be acquired in various ways. And some of the data that's acquired, it constitutes a violation of privacy. So if, for instance, you know, I want to, I want to be able to track people around the world. And so I go, go find your geolocation data. You know, I haven't trained my AI yet, but the data that I've used, um, I arguably I've now violated your privacy. So that's that's one way. Here's a second way. Suppose I take 
you know, I take your listeners' data um, and I combine it with data about where therapists' offices are. And then I run it through my, my AI, and then the AI predicts, you know, knowing where people are, what day, what time, and knowing the addresses of therapists' offices, it infers, you know, these people see therapists and these people don't. So you might think, okay, that's a new piece of information that we didn't previously have that was inferred by the, by the AI model. And that piece of knowledge itself constitutes a violation of privacy since that, you know, that you see a therapist is private information. So it's not the data that was collected, that's the invasion, although it might be that as well. It's also the, if you like, the data that's inferred from all the data that you collect can be a violation of privacy. And then the, the third bucket is really use case specific. So for instance, AI can be used to power new technologies like facial recognition software. And then you use that for say, surveilling the average citizen. And now you have another way of, another way of violating people's privacy by virtue of surveilling them in a way that you previously couldn't without AI. We heard from Kevin earlier, who actually is in the dentist chair, so he, he wasn't able to hold, but his comment, uh, he gets a lot of calls from what sounds like artificial intelligence. It sounds like you're getting a recording. Uh, he says, this is terrible customer service. I don't like it. I don't feel respected and, and wanted to bring that up as a drawback of, of AI. <laughs> How do you respond to that? Okay, so one is that he's probably not getting a call from an AI. It's probably just a, a recording. So there's there's no intelligent feature to it. It might just um, it says recording, and maybe if he says you know yes, I'd like to hear more. No, I don't want to hear any more. It can process that. That would be AI that can process that that um, that language, and then you know connect him to a, a live agent or not. Um, yeah, look, there's there's certain you know, straightforward bottom line questions, if you like, about whether using AI is effective for customer acquisition and retention. You know, the, the real ethical issue is whether people deserve to be told when they're interacting with an AI or not. Mm -hmm. so, so for instance, rather famously, infamously, uh, back, I think it was 2018, Google had a still has a piece of software called Google Duplex, which would call restaurants and make reservations. So, you know, it calls up, it says, hi, you know, I'd like to make a reservation at your restaurant for 8 p.m. The host says, well, how many, how many people? Oh, two people. And there's a conversation and then it's over. The, the AI that Google developed actually included sounds like, hmm, and Mm, um, you know, the kinds of sounds that humans make when they're thinking. And so the host or hostess reasonably concluded they were talking to a person when in fact they were just talking to a chatbot or an AI. And by the lights of some, not all, but by the lights of some, um, maybe even many, we have to do a poll, uh, that was deceptive, a deceptive practice that Google engaged in. And so it was wrong. Earlier, we brought up uh, consent and when people are even consenting when they're using an app or a website, you know, how people even understand that how that information will be used to read. Can you talk about, you know, any efforts where, you know, companies are doing a better job of explaining that before we hit OK when we're about to, you know, download another app on our phones? Yeah, so I'll give you two perspective on two perspectives on this. One is that we really do need increased informed consent, meaningful informed consent. And when I say meaningful informed consent, I mean more than just, you know, as you alluded to, merely clicking on a banner that says I accept so that you can just get on with it and use the website. Uh, 
because who has time to read a 30 page legalese document about what data is being collected and what's being done with it. So then the question becomes in some ways, uh, sort of a logistical or a pragmatic one or a user experience question. How can we, let's say we, you know, we, an organization that wants to be fully transparent about what data you're collecting and what you're doing with it. How do we communicate this to a public that is, that is, has a very short attention span. And so there's a, there's a really a design challenge. How can we communicate this information clearly, effectively, and efficiently such that we really do get meaningful informed consent from people when they click on I accept and it's not just them waving, you know, waving the banner away. So that's that's one one approach is we need to really do that better design, that better communication with people. Another perspective on it might be something like, well, you're not going to be able to get that. This is this is in some ways a kind of skeptics um, skeptics perspective. It's arguably my perspective. You're not going to be able to get meaningful informed consent from everyone on every piece of data that's collected. There's just too much. And it's not so much that we need meaningful informed consent by uh, users about what data is collected. Rather, we need regulatory protections so that people's data is not collected um, illicitly or used for illicit purposes. Right. So with a you know credit system, I don't know how the credit card system works, but there are regulations in place to protect me from, from scams and fraud and the like, um, or from, from banks treating me in a way that is, is just not okay, that would really harm me. Right. Arguably, we need the same things for um, consumer data protection or citizen data protection. It's not up to the individual to protect themselves. Rather, it's up to regulators to protect us uh, and so require certain kinds of actions from corporations to stop them from collecting data in a way that's that's wrong. Well, Reed, this was a, a good a good conversation to uh, put a tease out there for your book that's coming out, Ethical Machines, in July to help people uh, understand machine learning, thinking about the risks, and also helping senior leaders understand, um, um, you know, things that they can put in place to mitigate those risks uh, to users. Thank you so much for your time today. We can't wait to read your book. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Reed Blackman, founder and CEO of Virtue, an AI ethical consultancy. And remember, that book is called Ethical Machines, uh, coming out in July. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>